Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what is new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. Today, we have a very special guest all the way from the island of Hawaii, Lane Kawaoka. Welcome, Lane. Hey, thanks for having me, Victor. Great to have you here. You know, Lane, we've got to know each other over the last year or so. And, you know, I love what you're doing, uh, working with investors based in Hawaii, uh, investing largely in multifamily. Tell us a little bit of some of your backstory and how you got into multifamily investing and in particular syndication. Yeah, so I, um, my, my backstory is pretty boring. I uh, went to school. I was on that linear path, go to school, got an engineering degree. Then I started to, um, you know, invested in a single family home to live in like everybody else said to do, you know, get on that escalator of wealth is what they said. But, you know, I was never home and I, I um, was traveling all the time. And I, what I decided to do was, you know, just rent this thing out. And at the time for a young 20-year-old, that was a lot of uh, beer money. You know, that property rented for 2200 and the mortgage was 1600 And at that point, I was like, well, I just got to do this again and again and again. And bought 10 rentals, got Fannie... Fannie Mae, Freddie Dowd, and then uh, needed to scale up from there to multis. Right. So you so you moved from the kind of residential model of investing, and and now you're involved in commercial projects. Well, how did you make that transition? Yeah. So I went and joined an apartment mentoring group. You know, and just again, maybe that's just my my trademark is I just keep following that linear path and follow the natural progression. But and I went to learn from uh, a mentor and paid for the program and. I got about 18 months into it, and I realized that I didn't want to be a Class B, Class C multifamily operator. I didn't. I lived in Seattle at the time, a primary market with no cash flow, and it just didn't make sense from a numbers perspective. And I just didn't have the time to fly to these good markets to build relationships with brokers. And um, luckily, I started this podcast a couple years ago, Simple Passive Cash Flow, and. A lot of people in my shoes kind of liked it, and they sort of trusted me. I don't know why, <laughs> but <laughs> That's funny. you know, I started building relationships with a lot of investors, and they trusted my judgment. And I was always looking for deals to go in as a limited partner, also. Right. So I just kind of tell people about it, and and um, you know, it's gotten a little more sophisticated lately. But find good operators who do good things, and underwrite the numbers myself, and and invest. Well, I think that's important. You know, anytime if you're in this case doing sub syndications, I guess uh, you've got to definitely underwrite it as if it was your own project. Otherwise, you're just throwing money into the wind, right? Right. Well, so how do you vet the operators? How do you vet the projects and decide? You know, this is something that's not only worthy of your own cash, but also of the folks that you're bringing along into the project. I do like a fifty-fifty approach. So the first fifty percent is the person. So I've spent a lot of time and money joining different mentorship clubs, different masterminds, getting in, um, you know, building relationships, building my web of people. So if a, a document or an executive summary does pop up and, you know, there's several partners or leads on that, that document that I am pretty confident that I know somebody who has been in the previous deal that I can vet the person's character and the track record. So that's kind of the first part. If it doesn't pass there, I don't even look at the numbers. Of course, it start like with any business. It starts at the people level. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, building a piece of real estate or operating a hotel, a restaurant, a technology company. It's always really starts and ends at the people. Right, and you know, I've you, you're, a lot of your backgrounds, IT and tech and yes. startups, and I 
talked to a lot of guys who used to invest in that. Now they, they've gravitated towards real estate, obviously, why you and I are doing this. Correct. Um, and they say, you know, they like it because it's less emphasis on the operator, a little bit more emphasis on the deal also, which is why I do this 50-50 split. Right. Um, so, you know, after the, the person, the operator checks out, the other 50% is now I pull the P&Ls, the rent rolls, I do my own comp analysis, and I underwrite, if I was buying this deal, would I? And that's kind of the second part of it, because there are good people that from time to time will do bad deals. Um, it's got to be both. Right, you know? right. Yeah, you know, I think it, part of it's a discipline. Uh, I know in our case, you know, we're quite disciplined about what we do. We don't, you know, if something doesn't pencil, we don't do it. You know, we don't get attached or enamored to a particular deal. And, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And, you know, you just got to face that reality. Right, right. And I think especially in this, everybody says it's a seller's market. And, you know, Robert Kiyosaki says there's three sides to a coin. Correct. You know, people, 99% of the people out there are arguing back and forth if it's a good market, a bad market, if, should, if they should stop buying or just sit on the sideline. But sophisticated investors, they invest with good people and with properties that are undervalued, under market rents. And my feeling is if you keep betting on those type of projects, if there is a correction, at least you won't be underwater. Right. And at the very least, you have to do something. You can't just hoard cash you will lose by doing that. So is there a particular asset size or asset class that meets your criteria? I, you know, my progression is multifamily and maybe that's just what I'm most comfortable with um, because I just see how the demand for how workforce housing is, class B, class C. And that's where blue collared middle America is and the demographics are just, you know, the demand is just going up and up and up for that. But you know, I'm starting to come around to different asset classes like mobile home parks. We did that RV park, right. um, assisted living. I mean, that's just a no-brainer, I think, with the demographic change in that. Yeah, assisted living is one of those ones where, you know, from my vantage point, I see, a, I see it, in fact, overbuilt in a lot of primary markets. You know, there's been so much discussion about the baby boomers are coming, the baby boomers are coming. But guess what? They're not 85 years old yet. And that's the average age where people enter assisted living. So there's still another 10, 15 years to go before the, that big wave hits, uh, you know, and really need assisted living. So it's overbuilt in primary markets. But what that also means is that there's a lot of secondary and tertiary markets been largely ignored by some of the big national operators. And a lot of the product that's out there is, in fact, substandard. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there, uh, especially in secondary and tertiary markets. Right. And, you know, I just got done talking to Lo Hornbuckle and, you know, he's specializing in the boutique, boutique type of, right. you know, that higher end as opposed to that institutional uh, assisted living, you know, that one that Happy Gilmore sent his mom to right. in the movie. I call him like a hospital with a better paint job. Right. 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 The, the, the nice uh, prisons for old people. Is right. What a lot of people say, too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's been, I, I mean, you're a young guy. How old are you? Uh, 32 now. 32. You know, this is a, you know, a lot of people think, you know, I'm too young to get involved or I'm too this or I'm too that. And, uh, you know, when did, when do you start investing in real estate? I think I started when I was like about 2009. So that was about when I was like 21 or 22 or so. Well, that's awesome. I mean, you know, it, Anything that's done in life is, you know, you got to be patient, you got to develop, and uh, starting early definitely helps tremendously. Uh, if you start with when you're 60, you just don't have that much runway. 
And when you start when you're 20, you can you can really develop. So you're really really well positioned. Uh, it's been a pleasure to watch you working at this over the last little while, and I uh, wish you all the success. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Victor. All right, thanks for joining. Wow, what a great story. Rather than following the traditional path that so many real estate investors do, going to courses and then starting off flipping houses and doing all of that stuff, he instead decided to focus on syndication to move to the level of being more of a fund manager than a hands-on real estate developer. He recognized early on that there's many different roles that need to be played in any venture and that his gift, his special contribution, could be on the raising capital side. Not necessarily putting the deals together, nor even finding the deals, but simply partnering with people that are doing good quality projects, performing the due diligence to make sure that they're worthy of his investment criteria, and then bringing other people along for the ride. So you're thinking about the evolution of your own career as a real estate investor, or perhaps as a real estate developer. Have a spectacular day. Go make some great things happen, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.